0: Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy.
1: An awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hit headlines, and a forecast of some cool events for the weeks ahead. For the last episode of August, once again, we'll have No Drug of the Month, but we'll be back next week with a back-to-school special for September. Finally, we'll be having our roundtable discussion about the ongoing killings in the Philippines with Oliver Zarudo, California Chapter Coordinator for SSDP and Native Filipino. And of course, we'll wrap things up with our call to action, because while educating ourselves about drugs is important, It's not as important as using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 59 of This Week in Drugs. Uh, last week. So, Sam, do you want to take it away this week?
1: Absolutely. So for our first story here, we've uh, it's taken place in Seattle, which has long been the site of a lot of great advocacy, especially with reformers and even some government officials calling for safe injection sites like there are in nearby Vancouver. But in addition to those proposals, Seattle Mayor Ed Murray has now endorsed the creation of dormitory style homeless shelters that would allow residents to possess and consume drugs essentially a combination of a safe injection facility and a homeless shelter. So this approach has already been successful in treating alcoholism, with Seattle already home to a facility called simply 1811, a reference to its street address, where people addicted to alcohol can live, consume alcohol if they choose, or also utilize on-site treatment resources if they choose that option. And so Patricia Sully, who's a member of the city's heroin task force, is also quoted as saying 1811 has shown great results, And there's every reason to believe that a similar model for people who use drugs would show equally impressive results. So this is really inspiring. And and what do you think about it, Rochelle?
0: Um, I think this is great news in treating a multiple number of intersecting problems at the same time. Um, It really does seem like it's based on the Vancouver model where uh, the safe injection sites were already being located in places where um, uh, indigent people could receive a variety of healthcare services
1: hmm. Yeah, it is uh, definitely the ideal sort of model in terms of meeting the people where they are rather than trying to create something completely different that won't actually get utilized. But one, one thing that always does bug me during some of these uh, these statements, too, is just still this dichotomy between alcohol and alcohol addiction and then other drug addiction. Um, because that statement right there was saying, oh, you know, we have this great system for alcoholics. So it would be great to use that for people who use drugs too. But of course, alcohol is a drug. Alcoholics are, dr- alcoholics are drug addicts. And the solution there is to destigmatize drug addicts, of course, not to, to stigmatize alcoholism further.
0: Um, absolutely. Do you know if there was any pushback uh, when this was passed? Obviously, there are a lot of. Um elected officials who aren't quite as sensitive to these issues or well educated, who may see this as encouraging homeless people to engage in drug use rather than helping those recover who um, already are struggling.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. So it hasn't passed yet right now. It is is just a proposal, but hopefully it will be turning into something a lot more more formal and actually get adopted soon. Uh, there has been a little bit of pushback, kind of that familiar uh, not wanting to encourage drug use thing, like you said. but. I do think that framing it in the way or or setting up a situation in which it's a residential facility uh, versus having just a essentially, you know, not a storefront because they're not selling anything, but a a location where anyone can come in and use drugs like as more of the typical model with an SIF, that at least in this case, arguably there's less of a potential for it encouraging drug use, even though I think that's kind of a Uh, insincere argument to begin with but at least if it's within a defined population of say 100 people living here and uh, working with them it's not like a completely open area where anybody can come in and you could argue maybe that that's increasing drug use by giving the general public a place to go Um, so at least in this case it'll be working with people who already are dealing with drug abuse and trying to get them out of it rather than uh, just kind of an open public sort of thing
0: uh, so it's only for specific res- like long term residents for the homeless shelter rather than, you know, a lot of homeless shelters allow people to stop in without long term commitments to staying there.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. So it seems to be that they're asking for a, a bit more of a permanent situation, maybe somewhere in between. But they're talking about creating a, a, a residential facility where people can leave their possessions and have a bit more sense of permanence because. In terms of trying to give people stability, uh, if you're actually able to have, you know, your own room uh, rather than just just a bed that changes every night, um, that gives people a lot more stability. So it is kind of a, a dormitory style uh, facility in, is the way that they put it. So actually having people have their own small, but their own spaces rather than uh, kind of more of a group home situation.
0: Well, this is great news and it's great to have Seattle leading the way once again. So moving on to the world of pharmaceuticals, the CEO of pharmaceutical company Mylan, which sells EpiPens, has given herself an $18 million raise, which has raised a lot of eyebrows this past week. Um, So in 2007, Mylan acquired exclusive rights to sell EpiPens. And since then, the cost of the life-saving device has increased from about $55 per for a pack of two back in 2007, to more than $300, an increase of more than 400%. So meanwhile, CEO Heather Brush's salary in that same time frame, went from $2.4 million in 2007 to $18.9 million in 2015, an increase of more than 600%. According to a 2015 Bloomberg report, each EpiPen delivers about $1 worth of epinephrine, or adrenaline, the hormone that stops anaphylactic shock from happening in allergic reactions.
1: Yeah, so this does sound, you know, very reminiscent of what we were reporting on a few months ago with the Martin Shkreli situation with raising what is, I mean, EpiPens are a lot more familiar to people, um, but is still a rather small uh, group of people who are using it, but it is so important For their functioning in a day-to-day life and actually being able to, you know, not use this every day, but have that sense of security that they will be safe if they if they go into anaphylactic shock, and so this is pretty disgusting, um, uh, at least on the surface. Um, But you know, of course, as the token capitalist on this podcast a little bit of the don't hate the player hate the game sort of situation and i know is what the people inside the business are saying um i'd push back against that because when the game only has one player uh i think it is kind of fair to hate the player if they're behaving badly and that is pretty much the situation here is that this this one company has exclusive rights to be selling this and so uh it is definitely bad behavior on the part of this business and well it doesn't necessarily mean that there's uh any problem with uh, you know, the larger business world that this business is absolutely behaving badly and should be you know, publicly shamed for doing so
0: yeah, so you mentioned Martin Shkreli, and he's actually come out publicly in defense of Mylan and saying that the CEO Brush actually isn't making that much money, uh, which kind of gives you some perspective of how much pharmaceutical CEOs expect to be making. If he doesn't mm-hmm. think 18 million dollars or a 16 million dollar raise is that much, um, and he says that insurance companies are actually the ones to blame. Brush kind of takes a similar tact, saying that it's not really their fault. Um, like you said, they they're kind of taking a don't. Put, Blame the player, don't hate the player, hate the game kind of defense tactic. But she's saying that uh, the American healthcare system is so lacking in transparency that it incentivizes this type of behavior. So it's mm-hmm. not really her fault if no one knows how much anything costs. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting point that people have been drawing a connection to is that Bresh, the CEO, is actually a daughter of US Senator. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Um, Mm. and it's not a crime itself to be the daughter of an elected official, (laughs) Um, but there has been serious changes in federal uh, legislation and federal guidelines that have encouraged the widespread use or widespread sales of EpiPen in recent years. For example... um, Mylan lobbied for federal legislation encouraging states to stock epipens in schools which has been happening mm-hmm. uh and in 2010 new federal guidelines said patients who had severe allergic reactions should be prescribed two doses of epinephrine um instead of a single dose and then that's when myelin stopped packaging epipens in single doses altogether at the time mm-hmm. about 35 percent of prescriptions were for single doses only
1: mm-hmm yeah so this is also kind of a big example of cronyism and and the government essentially warping this market by on one hand creating a huge amount of demand for this product and when there's only one seller that does kind of naturally just lead to increased prices Uh, but on the other hand yeah just warping this in a way that does make it more Expensive for the individuals in these cases by trying to create all of this, this government demand for essentially stockpiling these because they're asking schools to keep a huge amount of them on hand when they probably won't even get used. So that really is unfortunate and does seem very sketchy when, uh, you know, your your senator father is the one who's pushing through a lot of this legislation that's helping your company.
0: Mm hmm. I think we can both agree at least that corporations should have less influence on government policy.
1: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely, especially when family relations are involved. And so for our next story here is that on this past Tuesday, Oklahoma's Secretary of State certified that a campaign to put medical marijuana on the ballot had exceeded the required 65,987 signatures and will be voted on this November. Uh, So I realized that 25 states already have medical marijuana, and and it's not really a sexy issue anymore for a lot of people. Um, So this might not be the most exciting news in isolation. Uh, But I push back on that a little bit, just saying that legalizing in Oklahoma would be an incredible breakthrough. Uh, We do want to start pushing into these much more conservative states that have people that are in dire need of of, of this medicine, uh, but don't really have... Uh, too much of a chance of accessing it because their laws are so harsh. Uh, But on a broader scale, too, um, it's really interesting because this brings the total number of states voting on anything marijuana related up to 10 this year, Uh, five of those being medical, five of them being adult use. Um, And so this is a a pretty massive news. And just that this is it already was the biggest year for marijuana yet. But now it's even bigger.
0: So we have been seeing seeing a tremendous amount of support for medical marijuana nationally um, at about 80 percent. According to the latest polls, Oklahoma is obviously, as you pointed out, a much more conservative state. So it sounds like this will be a, a tougher fight. Um, mm-hmm. Signature gatherers um, just barely made the cut. Actually, it looks like with a total of 67,761 signatures, which is just over 2000, the minimum requirement.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they really did get through kind of on the skin of their teeth there. Luckily, they did make the cut. Um, I- I'm hoping that now that they're actually on the ballot, they'll be able to attract some donations and actually have the funding necessary to, to advocate for this fully. But I don't know. I, I-, I haven't actually seen any state level polling in Oklahoma. I assume it's, you know, far lower than that 80 percent, like you said. Um, but hopefully maybe this is enough of a consensus issue that they- this could just pass without too much of a campaign uh, when the national movement or the national conversation is so much further along and like even the biggest drug warriors are essentially now saying that medical marijuana at least does have some value. It's acceptable, right? Yeah, so I mean maybe even just polling Oklahomans right now it would go for it, but Oh, and one other thing that I did want to mention here, too, is that it is officially that we are only going to be having 10 states vote in. Um, One other thing we talked about on previous episodes is that Michigan, um, they had gathered all these signatures, then the legislators passed a law kind of tweaking what the requirements were so that they no longer qualified. They had done a lawsuit and a judge did just rule that they officially will not be on the ballot. Um, Unfortunately, they did uh, kind of get screwed out of having a lot of their signatures counted in that situation, but Michigan will officially not be voting on marijuana this year, so it is definitely a total of 10.
0: Well, that's unfortunate. It does seem like the movement, uh, at least as far as funding that you're talking about, is is being stretched a little thin, even though, you know, this is the most popular year for ballot initiatives. That means the same money has to go around to 10 different states now. Mm-hmm. It is kind of encouraging to see that many of these medical marijuana initiatives, at least, um, have been completely grassroots efforts and that the mm-hmm. major national players that we normally see involved, like MPP or the Drug Policy Alliance, haven't really... Um, pitched into these states so it's definitely uh evidence that there is you know popular popular support for these um despite maybe a lack of funding or professional help
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: so moving on to our final story this week the legislative black caucus in maryland is asking republican governor larry hogan to intervene in the state licensing process for medical marijuana business licenses Um, so the winners of the Preliminary approvals for 15 processor licenses and 15 grower licenses in Maryland were announced a couple of weeks ago. But just one of those 30 possible licenses was awarded to a minority owned business. So Maryland is the state with the fourth highest percentage of black residents uh, per capita. Um and studies repeatedly show that African-Americans are disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. So the Legislative Black Caucus has been a huge supporter in Maryland of drug policy reform. And um, the chair of the Black Caucus, Delegate Cheryl Glenn, uh, mm. whose mother actually was honored with being, or the commission of the Medical Marijuana, no, the Medical Marijuana Commission in Maryland was actually named after Delegate Glenn's mother. Um, mm she has been demanding that there be a review and that, um, you know, that this, the harms of the war on drugs be taken into account um, in licensing, either in the future or in reviewing uh, the appointment of these licenses. It's not clear right. what exactly the solution would be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this really is too bad. I mean, I... I don't know exactly what I expected, but, you know, this has been such a trend nationally that when you set up these pretty high barriers to entry uh, in getting into a new medical marijuana market that it is, these licenses end up being given out to people who already have huge amounts of resources, which typically are white men. And so, unfortunately, this just continued here in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: It's just repeating the cycle rather than, um, you know, Mm -hmm. putting in... I mean, even though this issue is so steeped in social justice and racial mm-hmm. justice issues, um, we're not really seeing that on the implementation side is mm-hmm. what it's looking like. And yeah, we know, this... you know, that both of us have worked on the Maryland medical applications and I think it's probably one of the more transparent processes of any other state but mm-hmm. like you said this this is more of a systemic issue than outright discrimination.
1: Yeah and it is particularly disappointing too because I remember back at the very beginning of this process a lot of I think it was actually in the the first draft of the rules that there would be bonus points given to groups who certified themselves as a minority or, or women owned business. Um, and then that actually ended up being taken out. I think people were saying that it was unconstitutional uh, to, to be doing it on a race based way, which was probably true. But it's unfortunate that that wasn't replaced with any other sort of method of taking that into account. Um, sure, so instead of getting rid of that, they just ended up repeating the same mistakes of essentially every other state.
0: Yeah, I totally agree that perhaps the way that it was written initially would have been unconstitutional and that's what a a letter from the ag um Mm -hmm. actually said but we've seen in other states and particularly in oakland california you know um Mm -hmm. measures being taken to address race issues that weren't Mm -hmm. written in those explicit terms Mm -hmm. um and that's why they were able to pass constitutional muster so the commission could have used or i guess the yeah or the legislators who drafted the bill initially could have used Mm -hmm. a little more creativity in addressing this issue rather than just letting it drop
1: yeah it really is too bad that as soon as they got any pushback it was just oh okay we won't work on this issue anymore anymore. too bad Mm -hmm. and so unfortunately uh it doesn't appear that there is too much that's really possible there because the governor has also said that he doesn't have the power to intervene but we'll definitely be staying up to date on that process since in the world of medical marijuana licensing seems anything can happen Uh, But then moving on down into our quick hits, our first one is that a study out of the University of Arizona has found that ramen noodles are replacing cigarettes as the most popular currency in U.S. prisons. So rather than a decrease in tobacco use, the study's author actually attributes the shift to decreasing food quality as prisons cut costs.
0: This is very sad. (laughs) Um, In another study, this one out of Germany, uh, scientists found that while LSD does not affect reaction times, it does blur semantic barriers, bringing far more words to mind in an exercise where subjects were asked to identify objects in photographs.
1: And Maine Governor Paul LePage, an awful bigot that we've covered extensively on this podcast, has admitted to trying marijuana when he was 18 years old, even before the state decriminalized possession of the drug. But despite breaking criminal law himself, he still opposes any relaxation of those criminal laws for others.
0: Uh, That's an unfortunate hypocrisy we see in a lot of our elected officials, it seems. Mm -hmm. And finally, Connecticut's highest court has ruled that the University of Connecticut was not justified in firing an employee who was caught smoking marijuana while on the clock, saying that while a significant violation, the behavior did not endanger any people or property and that the school must use an alternative form of discipline.
1: And that's my alma mater. and then uh, moving on down into our weekly forecast Uh, mine is that next thursday and friday which is september 8th and 9th those in the bay area can go check out the silicon valley marijuana awareness conference this is hosted by a district attorney and a city supervisor so it appears to be mainly an anti-marijuana event uh kind of promoting itself as, as uh as neutral but the organizers describe it as here's a quote a fact-based discussion on what we have learned so far pertaining to the increased access and consumption of marijuana and the effects on youth, families, communities, and the environment, end quote. Uh, so while it does seem to be a mostly opposition event, there may be room for opposing views and audience questions. So if you're interested in attending, you can find the link on our website.
0: And this week is International Overdose Awareness Day. So on August thirty. 30- First, that's this Wednesday, people across the globe will come together to remember loved ones lost to overdose, support one another, and rally for positive changes to stop overdose from claiming even more lives. Those participating are asked to wear silver to signal their support. And we'll have a link to the International Overdose Awareness Day website on our website.
1: All right. So that's everything for this week's news and forecast. So as always, uh, we are always paying attention to all of the different news that's happening and coming across our desks. But there's so much going on, especially with election season, that it's easy to miss stuff. So if you find anything particularly interesting that you'd love to have us talk about on the podcast or you just want to make sure that we saw, feel free to send it to us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And, of course, we are particularly interested in any sort of forecast stuff that you've got out there because that's the hardest to know about. So if you've got events going on or anything like that, be sure to give us a heads up as well. And now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing drug policy and the ongoing brutal drug war with the extrajudicial killings that we've been talking about so much in our news segments in the Philippines over the past few months with Oliver Zaruto, who is the California campus coordinator for SSDP with strong ties to the Philippines himself. So, Oliver, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And so to start things off, just to help listeners understand where you're coming from, can you tell us a bit more about your relationship with the Philippines? I understand that you were, you were born there and grew up there?
2: Yeah, so I was born in the Philippines. The area where I'm from is uh, called the central Visayas. I'm from uh, the island of Iloilo, uh, from the main city on that island, Iloilo City.
1: Awesome. And you still have a lot of family that live there as well?
2: Yeah. uh, My mom moved out to the States in the mid-90s, but other than um, her and her siblings, it's pretty much my entire um, family and extended family out there.
1: Cool. And so you moved over when you were uh, a small child, but still sometimes make visits and stay in in close contact with all of your family out there? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I moved uh, to California when... I guess at, like, the start of elementary school, but I typically try to Mm -hmm. go back to the Philippines every, uh, like, Christmas, New Year's, like, wintertime season, you know? Hmm.
1: Awesome. And so uh, before we dive into the specifics about the, the current situation with President Rodrigo Duterte's policies... I also wanted to talk a little bit about the general culture and politics of the Philippines, because honestly, as most of our listeners are in the United States, a lot of them probably just don't even know the general culture and how things work out there, so... Could you just tell us a little bit about, I guess, a, a brief overview of the Philippines in terms of how their government's set up or, or what the kind of sentiments are, are, are out there?
2: Um, I think what distinguishes the Philippines um, from most democracies and maybe just most countries in Asia is that it's uh, actually uh, a Catholic nation. Like Catholicism is coded into our law and the church has a large way mm-hmm. in our politics and our legal system.
3: Interesting. Um,
2: What's also very interesting is that the uh, area where Duterte is from is actually an island haven for the Muslim community. There's a large Muslim population in the country. And uh, those kind of like two ideologies play a large role in how governments and policies are kind of impacted and um, affected in the region. I think um, due to like Spanish colonization, we're a region that also uses the peso. Um, And so we're seen as like a developing nation still, but if we wanna like take a comparative look, like the peso in Mexico is roughly about like, I wanna say like 15 to 17 pesos to a dollar. However, mm-hmm. currently in the Philippines, like our Filipino peso is like 47, 48 pesos mm-hmm. to a dollar. So like the currency mm-hmm. in our economic situation is a lot like, I would say worse off than most Latin American countries, um, Mexico specifically in comparison hmm. Um, but, yeah, is there anything else specifically you'd like me to talk about in terms of like
1: the. The other thing that I was, I was just most curious about in terms of the electoral system or, or what kind of major political factions there are, I know something we're going to dive into in a little bit, an interesting thing is that the vice president and the president are elected separately. Um, but just in terms of are, is it a kind of a two party system? Are there a lot of different factions like we see in most non U.S. countries?
2: It's um So it's, I think the Philippines is a really interesting multi-party democracy system where there are, I think, more parties than I even know about. Uh,
3: <laughs>
2: but there are about, I want to say, less than 10 major parties. Uh, the ones that were, I guess, the focus of the last uh, presidential election were the Liberty Party, the LP, who um, elected their vice president. And uh, this has been the party that was in power for the last... I want to say three presidencies um and they were succeeded by Rodrigo Duterte's party the PDP Laban party and they've actually um are a fairly new party that formed after the fall of the dictatorship um in 1982 and they haven't been able to elect a president before Duterte so this is um new grounds for them other than that the other parties that were kind of um Highlighted in the election where the uh, Lacas party, led by Gloria Arroyo. And uh, they're kind of like a Christian right ideology party. Um, they form like a lot of uh, strong religious ties with Muslim communities and Christian communities across the nation. And they're kind of like pushing mm-hmm. that ideology into government more so than it is right now. Um, other than that, there's a... Uh, Party called the Democratic Action Party that I don't really understand um, How their ideology quite differs from uh, the other progressive parties in the Philippines, but Mm -hmm. That's that So we
0: we also touched a little bit upon um, the economic situation in the Philippines Can you tell us about what crime and poverty looked like in the country? um, before President Duterte took office Um, because I know even though the Philippines is the only Catholic country, um, you know, in Asia, other countries in the region have had similarly severe approaches to drug policy. For example, in Indonesia, which we, which has been known to routinely execute low level drug offenders. So this doesn't seem entirely out of step with what some other countries in that region have been practicing.
2: Yeah, I think typically execution is something that Southeast Asia is kind of like um more keen on doing i think specifically in the philippines why we've staved off these kind of executions is that in uh 2002 the pope came to the philippines and demanded that we put a moratorium on the death penalty because we were just using it so much oh wow Mm -hmm. and so because we're catholic a lot of people in the nation were like you know what okay fine Mm -hmm. still the sentiment (laughs) that the death penalty should be reinstated so i i really want to emphasize that like even though Duterte is doing what he's doing now, he doesn't have the rule of law to to put people to death if they were to go through a court trial. Mm. Uh, and that's something that he's trying to bring back right now, but he's unable to do because of a lot of political stops.
0: So basically what we're seeing is a, is a policy of non-enforcement against people who are committing these extrajudicial killings. Basically he's saying I'm not I can't I can't go out and do these executions on my own as you know an elected official, but if you guys do these, which I urge you to, we're not going we're going to protect you. We're not going to enforce like homicide charges against you
2: or internal affairs investigations and, and or none of that. And what I think is interesting is because he's assuming that everybody who is accused or assumed to be part of drug trade or part of corruption is guilty. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Uh, so, Yeah. Oh,
0: go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Um, I think what's really interesting in terms of um, this stave off the death penalty is that the prior president, um, Aquino, his, I don't know if for some context on him, the former president, Aquino, he's the son of the first female president in all of Southeast Asia. Um, And his Mm. father was Mm. also the senator who led the revolutionary democratic movement to oust or overthrow the dictator in the 80s. Oh, wow. He comes from, Mm. like, a long legacy of, like, political stock and political history in the Philippines. And it kind of just, like, propelled him into this, like, uh, I don't know how I should say it. The The Philippines is, like, a very tribal country. And so you'll see that, like, certain people will only live in certain places if only certain last names are around them. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in Mm -hmm. my region, if you have the last name Zerudo, you can pinpoint areas and islands where Zerudos will only be. Uh, Because there's a lot of, like, I think, like, bloodline loyalty and affiliation that, like, leads to, like, the tribalistic Mm -hmm. life that we lead out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think a lot of the people who romanticized this like these revolutionary figures you know the the senator who got killed trying to overthrow the dictator and the wife who like became president trying to run the country in his image i think a lot of people romanticized that and after the dictatorship fell we had some really bad presidents after right we had um another military general who like steered us too close to martial law we had a woman who basically infiltrated a lot of high-level members of the House, Senate, and her national government or her national cabinet with uh, random lovers, basically. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. And then we had, um, like our version of Arnold Schwarzenegger, this movie star who ran on a <laughs> populist front, uh, mm-hmm. and he said he would support the poor and basically ended up looting the government. Uh, mm-hmm. he's now been the mayor of our capital Manila since like the mid 90s um, and so I think like there's been a steady couple generations of corruption in terms of like the president's office
3: mm-hmm. so it's this mm-hmm. great
2: romanticization of the Aquino family and getting somebody from the Aquino family back into power
1: mm-hmm. and so
2: it was just kind of this like George Bush moment where like the son gets thrown in the office
1: interesting and, and- and yeah, as far as talking about Duterte's election specifically, too, and just how, how we got into this situation, um, it is really interesting that the, the, his whole policy of these extrajudicial ju- killings um, isn't something that he just declared after he got into the presidency. This was actually part of his campaign. This idea itself was not a surprise, uh, maybe a surprise that he actually followed through on it to some people. Um, but, but were you surprised that he won based on... That election promise was this kind of like I don't know an even more extreme version of a Donald Trump that a lot of people wrote off and then ended up having a surprise victory, or was it actually a pretty serious campaign and, and people knew that this was coming
2: I think this was a very serious campaign, and a lot mm-hmm. of us don't realize that fear mongering looks like and feels like something completely mm-hmm. different in Southeast Asia than it does in the west um the Philippines specifically has about like seven or eight armed rebel groups, spanning from Muslim rebel groups to ISIS affiliated groups to the communist mm. groups that just haven't died out from the eighties.
3: Mm-hmm. Um not
2: only that, uh we have that whole huge ongoing thing with China and the Philippine Sea.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um and we just don't have the money or the military power to do anything about any of those people.
3: Um mm-hmm.
2: And so when Duterte ran on this whole campaign about cleaning up the streets, knowing that he was aligned, um, oh, for context, Duterte, he's from the southern region, uh, mm-hmm. the Muslim region of the Philippines. And that happens to be the headquarters of the vast majority of the communist groups and the Muslim rebel groups. In-
1: mm-hmm. uh, Interesting. Interesting. And I was actually very curious just about his, his own religious affiliation, since that is such an important thing in the country. And I and I did just look it up that apparently he was raised in the Catholic Church. But even during the campaign just a few months ago, he clarified that he actually doesn't believe in Catholicism, saying that, quote, if I listened to the Ten Commandments or to the priests, I would not be able to do anything. Um, and so
2: yeah. he's even cursed at the pope.
1: Mm hmm. Which is, yeah, it's surprising as, I suppose, as an outsider seeing such a Catholic country, this essentially anti-Catholic person coming into the presidency. But there are, yeah, so many other things going on, as you talked about.
2: Yeah. And I think what's also very interesting about the Duterte campaign campaign is that he he was definitely the underdog, like the Liberal Party, Lenny Robredo and Mar Rojas, the, the pair who ran for the LP for president, vice president. I, mm-hmm. I like... And this is not validated or sourced by anything official. But in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. they say the LP is funded by the CIA. That's just like everywhere. LP is funded Mm -hmm. by the CIA. LP is funded by like old U.S. military interests. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's just how they feel out there, that U.S. military bases came in because of the Liberal Party and their policies and their politics.
0: So do you feel like the support for, uh, not Zarudo, that's you, for Duterte um, was related to uh, an anti-American sentiment? Like a feeling of like we're, we're over being um, these puppets to the CIA or, to, or, or being a de facto American colony and that's why we want to elect an outsider?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. And there was a strongman like Duterte who preached uh, an individualistic and nationalistic sentiment. That Mm -hmm. really appealed to the people, but he also said that he would do something after he individualized us from the states. I think Mm -hmm. there's something to be said about Duterte wanting to increase the violence, but violence that is not based on the U.S. military.
0: And the policy that he's espousing and that he's carrying out very efficiently now of these extrajudicial killings um, is not something new for Duterte either because before he ran for office of president, he was mayor of his hometown and they had a similar policy there too. Uh, Isn't that right?
2: Definitely. So Duterte has been the mayor of Davao City on the island of Mindanao um, since I think the early 80s. I think he's been the mayor there for about 30 and a half decades or 30 years. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think he's had any aspirations to rise any higher than that, other than this presidential run. What's very, very, very interesting is that there are a lot of rumors that Duterte's son um, is like the largest gun smuggler and drug smuggler in that region. Uh, there's like a lot of rumors that... He- oh, Wow. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rumors that he coordinates and plans the the gun routes between the armed groups and the rebel groups in the south, and because of that, also has like some hands in also the drug routes and the smuggling routes down there too. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so there's implications that this um that this policy is kind of protectionist for his son is is what you're getting at?
2: Definitely, definitely. And I think what he's doing is kind of maybe. Um, applying the kind of methods he used to secure his base in the South nationally. Because if we mm-hmm. look at where the drug killings are situated, they're not in the North Philippines. They're not in the Eastern Philippines. They're not even on the islands extending outward past Manila. They're all in the region slightly north of Mindanao. Oh
3: mm-hmm.
2: wow. They're all in the southern Visayas, western Visayas, my home region, central Visayas, and those are the islands directly north of Mindanao. Uh, which Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, we can say, look, it's only been 50 days into his election or his presidency. Of course, he's going to slowly creep northward. But, you know, what are the implications of that?
1: Mm -hmm. And that is all really interesting because, I mean, one of my questions was going to be here is basically whether or not this was uh, an earnest sort of policy that may be, you know, obviously misguided and and terrible, but of like coming from a, a place of wanting to actually root out crime or if it was more uh, political than that and just kind of basically McCarthyism that we had here in the United States where senators were, uh, you know, producing lists of people that they claimed were communists with barely any evidence. But just in order to discredit them, uh, because Duterte, on top of saying, okay, people kill drug dealers, kill drug users, we won't prosecute you. In addition to that, he's even produced a list of names, I think it was over 150 of people in government that he claims are involved in the drug trade. Um, and, And so I assume that probably all of those people are political opponents of his. And I was wondering what you thought that that played into it. But the added element of him possibly also being involved in the crime himself and doing this as more of a protectionist thing is also really interesting.
2: So I have I have two conflicting perspectives. As somebody Mm -hmm. who is reading similar articles as y'all, as somebody who's just, like, looking at this from an outward perspective, I totally believe there's, like, a McCarthyist, like, you know, slant on this. I totally believe there's Mm -hmm. this idea here that there are some people who are just oppositional to Duterte's framework, and he just feels like that the removing them from the process would be so much easier to his consolidation of power. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I totally believe that. But then I ask my family back home, like, Who are these drug personalities? Who are the local lawyers? Who are the local people that are doing the vast majority of trafficking, smuggling, and distribution in the region? Are they being killed? My family's like, yeah, they are. They are. Like a lot of people are turning themselves in and it's not the wrong people. And I'm happy about it. I talked to my grandma, my cousins, my nieces and nephews, and some of them are involved in the drug trade. Some of them are like, we have to leave the country. I have three or four cousins haven't been mm-hmm. back to the country be- since Duterte got elected. No. They oh, wow. have the privilege to leave, right? Because uh-huh. they have the mm-hmm. financial privilege to leave, they can do that. But they haven't been back to the country since Duterte got elected. So I haven't mm-hmm. had that conversation with them yet of why, but it's still true, right? Mm-hmm. Like your aunt and like my aunt and uncle literally sent their kids out of the country and it's been like what? 3 months now?
0: Right, since May. So so it seems like it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both politically expedient and convenient for him, and at the same time, he is targeting actual um, people involved in the drug trade. It seems, but that's a good segue to my next question, which is that I've seen some um, commentary or analysis from you know academics or experts in the Philippines saying you know that. This drug that this policy of allowing extrajudicial judicial killings actually has been effective um, And they seem to support Duterte as a strong president and someone who can fulfill his campaign promises um, I've seen it cited like as part as support for this belief that You know 600,000 people have turned themselves in already saying that you know, admitting that they're involved in the drug trade so as to avoid being killed in cold blood on the street. Um, and so what What has the response been generally in the Philippines to this? Like looking in from the outside, all of the all of the articles we've seen, especially coming from the United States or other Western media, you know, condemns this as, human rights violations and the un uh the united nations have said similar things but what do people inside the philippines people who've elected this president feel about whether he's accomplishing his mission or not
2: if i'm being honest the only negative feedback i've heard about anything around duterte are coming from people who have financial interests in mar rojas winning the election over him and i think that's like kind of wow i think that's Mm -hmm. very concerning like Where I stand on these whole thing, on like the killings, especially. Uh
3: huh. Mm
2: -hmm. But when I talk to my grandma, who like goes to church four times a week, she Uh loves the fact that these drug dealers are dying, quote unquote. Wow. Like Mm -hmm. loves the fact that she feels comfortable knowing that she probably won't run into meth or meth dealers when she just like goes to church. Right. Um. I think there's like an ideological thing for the elders in like the Philippines that have noticed that you know drugs are now a thing like ordinary drug use casual drug use social drug use whether it's meth whether it's cannabis whether it's ecstasy is kind of just growing into like the social fabric of the philippines and they're like really 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 angsty and angry about that
1: Uh Mm uh-huh on the that isn't or no go for it
2: on the other hand i think there's like a younger generation of like folks who are born in like the mid-60s mid-70s who are like Super happy that Duterte has folded a lot of communist people into his national party Like he's put a lot of communist leaders into his platform
3: Oh interesting Mm -hmm. leaders
2: into high positions in the national government Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are are willing to look aside killings knowing that uh, That these more left-leaning politicians or these politics are going to be in You know the spotlight for the next six years
1: That is really interesting because a lot of the time i feel like just the assumption of most other politics at least in the united states and and in many uh countries in europe right now is that it's typically more people on the right wing that are encouraging more violence in recent decades but it's very easy to forget that that was much more the uh case on on the left a few decades ago and that that still definitely does uh does continue today And so on the topic, too, of talking about some of the the opposition here, it does sound like among rank and file kind of everyday people that unfortunately there isn't too much opposition, uh, especially among churchgoers, which which is very interesting, especially just since the pope himself has has condemned uh, these any sort of death penalty, especially without court. Um, So one of the high profile uh, folks who have been speaking out Against Duterte was actually the vice president, uh, Robredo, um, so uh, Lenny Robredo, and she's spoken out against it, saying that they're a violation of human rights and the wrong way to address the issue of drug abuse. Um, and there have also been some others in government who have condemned the killings, but it does seem pretty rare overall. Um And so I I talked about this earlier. It's interesting from an American perspective to see the vice president condemning the president about anything, um, but that's actually because these two are elected separately. And you mentioned before it was that her party was actually kind of the uh, presumptive winner, um, but then Duterte ended up being the underdog and winning. But since those are elected separately, I guess the vice president, on his ticket wasn't anywhere near as uh, charismatic and so... He or she didn't really make it on, but now we have this weird split government going on.
2: The the race for the executive positions in the Philippines is kind of weird. They're just completely separate. Like mm-hmm. Duterte's party didn't even run a vice president.
1: Oh, okay. Just, so that's why they didn't win. Yeah, they just
2: <laughs> didn't run a vice president at all. Uh, mm-hmm. So the way that works is that the the presidential election is completely separate from the VP election, and they're two mm-hmm. things. Um, candidates run on separate platforms, usually independent and distinct from each other mm-hmm. uh, so that 's not surprising there. What I think is surprising about Lenny Robredo is that her husband Jesse Robredo, died in twenty two or in twenty two thousand and twelve um and he was secretary of the interior and local government under the last president like uh, mm. um, and so I think uh, again, this is leading into the legacy of like the Philippines wanting to elect you know people out of you know, the memories of their former loved ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think Lenny running on this whole human rights stance is basically a mirror of her husband's campaign. Um, Oh. Secretary of the Interior, he ran on this entire, we need to make sure that schools and children are safe. He pushed on this whole, like, make all schools a gun-free zone, drug-free zone. Um, But then he he died. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think you know, supporting his platform points are exactly what she's going to do as a VP. And this is one of them, human rights and the safety of people in, like, local um, communities.
1: Mhm. And do you think, in terms of the way that the government is set up there, I assume, just like the United States, that unfortunately the vice president really doesn't have too much power. Um, but I know that she has also said that there's some people in Congress speaking out against it and may launch some sort of investigation Is the president typically kind of like the United States, incredibly strong? And do do you think there's actually any going to be any traction at stopping this, or because he's president, does he almost have free reign here?
2: I feel like the the president has a lot of authority over the executive or over the legislative and judicial branches. Um, I think there's a fairly imbalanced um, partitioning of power there. Um, What's very very interesting is that a lot of Congress people and Senate people. Um, they are not so much interested in national politics, but of the interest of their local constituents. And uh, that's because a lot of these folks are, like, long legacy families. Like, for example, in my region, the congressman um, is Jerry Duertas, and the congressman before him was Roddy Duertas, and the congressman before him was his dad, and before him his dad. And I think we have these families, like, there are certain people that you can identify who are going to be the next president or the next um senator or next governor of a region and you may not know their first name but you definitely know their last name you just know who mm-hmm. going to be based on the wealthy families in that region and so things like that i don't think change over the years it's like mm-hmm. how the uh the the president who was a movie star is still the mayor of manila It's because his family's from there and they're not going to leave power
0: right so there's not so there's not as much interest in confronting these national policies or confronting the president on his national policies as there is in making sure your region's interests are represented, it sounds like.
2: I feel like in my opinion and my experience, the House uh-huh. and the Senate are clearly invested in interior matters and the matters of their constituents. And usually and typically they leave the federal government alone, uh, mm. which is why that when federal elections or when presidential elections happen it's usually governors and mayors who run instead of senators and congressmen
0: so if pressure is not coming from the inside to halt these killings and um, you know I think it it was very eye-opening to me and probably to many of our listeners that generally the response in the Philippines has not has been positive or accepting um, of these extrajudicial killings do you think any influence from the outside might halt what has so far been a very efficient killing of people without due process? Um, we know that the United Nations, for example, has started to get involved in the situation with uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon and the UN Office of Drugs and Crime con- condemning Duterte's quote apparent endorsement of ex- extrajudicial killings, um, but Duterte doesn't seem to care. Um, he's responded that the criticism is stupid and that the UN should not get involved in a sovereign nation's um, policies. So what, what kind of pressure do you think um, is being exercised here, whether it's going to work or not?
2: I think like the Philippines understands itself to be in a unique international situation where we are part of the UN, but we're only part of the UN because we were colonized when the UN was created, so we were in the U.S.,
3: <sighs> right, sure.
2: technically the 50th state when the UN was formed so technically we're a member nation and a founding member nation uh-huh. at that but the minute we won our independence we we helped form ASEAN like no southeast asian nation besides the philippines is in the UN because we have our separate international entity called the associated southeast asian nations and, oh, I
0: had no idea.
2: Yeah. So, like, Thailand, Indonesia, Myanmar, Burma, all those, like, island regions uh, mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia, they, they're they not part of the UN because they have this thing called ASEAN. Um, and so they meet, I think, bi-monthly. And so they have this thing called Asian democracy, and it's, like, their own form and style of governance where they don't take meeting notes, they don't vote, they don't write anything down, <laughs> don't have constitutions, mm-hmm. um, and they just kind of like rant at each other all day and <laughs> their shit out, and then they meet sixty days from then.
1: That's interesting. So it's it's somewhat similar. Um, I'm sure there are huge differences, but to maybe the the EU or another kind of. Uh regional association of countries and it sounds like if there's a lot of yelling at each other It's like the eu if if britain had actually stayed in and was running the show or something like that
2: Exactly because you have a lot of like different political and religious interests in the room and like it gets Mm -hmm. Plus they like literally don't believe in constitutions. They're like we refuse to take notes and vote And it's like, Mm all right, cool. But like how do you remember stuff?
0: right (laughs) (laughs) um
2: but yeah, so I think I think any outside pressure from like the UN doesn't really matter because our interests are being or uh, not our wow awkward Duterte's <laughs> interests are being like financially supported by everybody who wants he wants right like Kerry right. like oh Kerry came and gave him thirty two million dollars like the minute he got elected Obama like praised his election and like he didn't that doesn't happen with like Mexican. You know, presidents, that doesn't happen with Latin American coup winners. You know, that just doesn't happen. But for some reason, um, the Philippines is like a democracy that we want to protect.
0: That's a really that's a particularly interesting response um, to Duterte winning, I think, because especially in light of what you told us is, quote unquote, common knowledge in the Philippines about his opponents, the Liberal Party being the American puppet party, and now he's seeking, um, you know, praise or support from that exact, quote unquote, colonial power, the United States that he kind of ran to oppose.
2: Right, which makes it weird. Like, is it is it all about China, which makes me think like, I feel like it's just like a China thing. Um, because the- can
0: you can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm sure it's like very complicated um, politics, but just for myself and other listeners who might not know the relationship between the Philippines and China, um, just like explain what you mean by the China thing.
2: Sorry, um, so like international maritime law states that 500 miles from your like um, your like beach shores uh-huh. are still part of your like territory. So, like, 500 miles from San Francisco beaches are still part of California. Uh, 500 miles from, like, any port or pier in the Philippines is still, you know, Filipino sovereign territory. Okay. Um, and so that creates, like, a wide bubble around a lot of island nations to create laws around exports, imports, piracy, a lot of those things that deal with water in general. Uh, mm-hmm. So in my region of the world, um, to the left or I guess to the east of the Philippines is the South China Sea, also known as the Philippine Sea. There's like a debated name um, around what to call that right now, Um, because China what China has done is that they've said that the entire uh, waters south of its country are theirs. Um, extending up until like 20 miles off the coast of Thailand, like 10 off the coast of the Philippines, like five miles off the coast of Japan. They're just like, Mm -hmm. the whole thing is South China Sea. Like we've named the whole thing South China Sea. It's ours. Right. The UN is like, no, you can't do that. I'm sorry, international maritime law. Um, But China is like, well, our naval boats are there. Come stop us. So <laughs> Thailand doesn't have a naval fleet to do anything about it. Neither does the Philippines.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Japan is not about to send the U.S. naval fleet out there. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So basically the U.N. is kind of just yelling at China, and China is just positioning their boats and blowing up Filipino and Thai fishing vessels. Which... Oh, gotcha. So with the Filipinos, this has been happening since like the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, what Filipinos have been doing is that they've been erecting like small islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they've called this like the Spratly Island ordeal. They've like mm-hmm. erecting small islands, like man-made islands, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and like planting Filipino flags on them and calling them like autonomous regions, and like annexing mm-hmm. them as part of the... in like, order to expand
1: the international. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: to like expand their borders, right? And they can only do this very slowly but China's coming mm-hmm. in and like doing similar things right erecting man-made islands and stuff like that
1: yeah yeah so it is really important to think about the context in which all of this is happening because there's all these very long-going uh disputes with with its neighbors along with um a lot of other strange stuff going on with non-neighbors just like the United States and so it is unfortunate it re- Perhaps surprising in certain ways, but not surprising in others that the United States is not really condemning what's going on in the Philippines and even giving tens of millions of dollars in aid there. So uh, uh, mm -hmm.
2: supporting the Duterte regime ensures that TPP gets passed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like really important right now is seeing that like no country in Southeast Asia that's like allied with the United States has any friction with TPP. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm.
1: And yeah, so the, the priorities of the United States and perhaps even the United Nations and other groups is these, these drug killings are really not even a priority, unfortunately, that, that human rights un- ends up taking a backseat to all of these, you know, keeping goods flowing and having, uh, yeah, like the international kind of... Uh, unity, even if some of those uh, groups within that that unified sphere are behaving really terribly, right?
2: Because I bet, I bet if Duterte had lost, Kerry wouldn't have given that thirty-two million. They wouldn't have needed to. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's a fascinating. This has been a, an incredibly interesting conversation. Um, just giving us a lot more perspective on how you know drug policy is viewed in other countries that we're not as familiar with, and how international politics plays. Uh, is, like, so complex and plays such different roles in how we respond to human rights violations like this in other countries. It's, I mean, it's Unfortunate that it doesn't seem like there's very much pressure coming from either inside or outside the country uh, To change what's happening Um, But Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today And we do always wrap up our discussions with a call to action Since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place So is there anything we can do as concerned citizens if we want to um, affect what's going on in the Philippines or anything else you'd like our listeners to take action on right now?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think right now some things that your listeners could do is go and find the Students for Sensible Drug Policy or Drug Policy Alliance petitions to um, urge Duterte and the U.S. to intervene in the drug killings going on over there right now. Um, both of those petitions are up online and circulating around.
0: Okay, that sounds great. We'll make sure to have links to the petitions online on our website at thisweekindrugs.org. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today and speaking with us about what's going on in the Philippines. This has been Oliver Zaruto, uh, California Campus Coordinator for Students for Sensible Drug Policy and uh, a Filipino-born man himself. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to episode 59 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and myself, Rochelle Young, co-host Return from Exile. Our producer is Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Oliver Zaruto once again for joining us for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and events. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. It helps us get to the top of the charts so other people can discover us and can start listening and learning too. Finally, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit a small monthly donation to help defray our web hosting fees. So that's all for episode 59 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Porch Swing by Reflections of Stars.